0: Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and National Writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. New York Times best-selling author Martin Dugard has written several books of history, including Taking Paris. His newest book is Taking Berlin: The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. It's a nonfiction thriller about the race between the Allies and the Soviets to conquer the heart of Nazi Germany, while American General George Patton and British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery vie for supremacy as the Allies' top battlefield commander. Martin Dugard, welcome. Uh,
1: Good morning, nice to be here.
0: Um, You start your book with a logical starting point uh, in May of 1944, and how did you choose that as the starting point of your story?
1: You know, it's it's funny you ask because, you know, because this is a sequel to Taking Paris. My, in my mind, originally, the logical starting point was, uh, you know, picking up right where Taking Paris left off. So that would be August 26, 1944, with the liberation of Paris. And I got stuck. I mean, I wrote that chapter, and I think right now it's chapter 14. Um, and I, I realized that to tell the story properly, I needed to to give it greater context and I needed to, to back up. Um, so I went all the way back to May 1944 and, you know, the moment where there you was know, this great meeting in London where where they're, you know, they're about to unveil the, uh, the D-Day invasion to all the generals and admirals involved, but in you know, which, which meant that basically to, to get from there to Paris, there were, you know, 13 chapters in between. Um, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, that is a, as an author, sometimes that is, One of the toughest things is, you know, where do you get into the story? Where do you where do you pick it up? Because you don't want to start too soon, and then then you have a lot of fluff up front, um, and you don't want to start too late because then the reader is going to be, you know, kind of scratching their head and wondering, you know, what 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 am I missing? So, um, so you know, it it felt good to go back just before D Day, and you know, and I visited the place where that meeting took place, you know, in in uh, in downtown London. So it it felt like a great I I could set the scene. I had you know, I'd seen the room, well, the room isn't there anymore, but I'd seen the the buildings next door, which had the same kind of you know interior. So and then, you know, just put the put the people in into the seats and let the action unfold.
0: My guest is Martin Dugard, and he has a new book taking Berlin. One thing I appreciate, and you did this in your previous book, Taking Paris, is that at the start of a chapter, you tell us the date, even the time of day and where this is taking place. For example, when you open, this is May 15th of 1944. This is London, England, 9.50 a.m. And you're precise about that because, and I've, I enjoyed getting to know the personalities of these historic figures. Uh, Winston Churchill is there. He's on time. And then you say, the doors are closed and locked precisely at 10 a.m. Late arrivals denied admission. British General Bernard Law Montgomery, and this is a host for today's event, has made this very clear. So, (laughs) you say, as everyone entering the room well knows, Monty always gets his way. Now, uh, how did you feel, as the more you got to know uh, Montgomery, uh, how did you feel about him?
1: Um, (laughs) I don't know, I'm not a Montgomery fan, I mean, I'm I'm something of an Anglophile, and I'm I really uh, think a lot of Churchill, but I, you know, I think Montgomery is a little bit persnickety and, uh, you know, frankly, I think his victory at El Alamein, which was pivotal to his career in the the eventual British success in North Africa, was based more on, you know, uh, hacking the German Enigma codes rather than any great generalship on Montgomery's behalf, which I'm sure will infuriate all the Montgomery people out there. But one thing I did like, you know, go back to that meeting that you just described it offered me a unique opportunity to introduce three of the four main characters, um, in, in the opening chapter. And and we set up that rivalry with Montgomery and Patton. Uh, we set up the, the third person thing that, you know, Churchill was kind of this hovering personality trying to, uh, you know, kind of steward, you know, all the, you know, the allied presence forward towards the end of the war and hopefully, you know, save Britain's place in the post-war world. So I, I liked being able to contrast Patton and Montgomery so early, you know, mm-hmm. Patton, Patton is tall and brash. He's got, you know, pearl handled revolvers. He's, you know, he's wearing riding boots. He's got a an expensive Savile Row great coat uh, because he was a man of means. You know, Montgomery is bird-like and thin, very, uh, very fastidious with his diet and his, his timing, very, um, uh, very churlish as a matter of fact, you know, kind of a man of great ego. Uh, which pet was too? So you put them in the same room. <laughs> you set up that, that that drama, which which is fun to watch it unfold.
0: So you open with an operation that we have all heard of, and many Americans have visited the beaches at Normandy. What should we know about Normandy as we proceed? As you proceed with your story? Well, then you know the
1: the norman coastline is not the most direct route into france and in, which is why the germans were uh, you know and hitler in particular remained insistent that the landings at normandy were just a diversion and that the real landings were going to take place at calais which is just a hop and a skip and a jump over the english channel from um from uh, from dover so but with, with the thing about normandy and you know like you said a lot of people who are listening have been there it's a very tranquil uh, countryside area. You know, you have these beautiful green rolling Hills. You've got these narrow country lanes. uh, You've got these beautiful, you know, beaches with this nice fine sand and, and you know, the quiet whisper, you know, not big waves, but just the whisper of, of just nice tide coming in and out. Um, And if you go there now, it's completely peaceful. It's one of those places that you, you can imagine buying a country house and, and you know, spending your summers there. Um, so, for the for the invasion to take place in that setting, really is such a great juxtaposition because you have this quiet bucolic location, and then all of a sudden, massing offshore, you've got thousands of ships, you've got you know hundreds of thousands of men, and it it really sets the scene for just an amazing confrontation between you know the German soldiers hidden. In, within those Norman emplacements and the, this, this coming uh, army. But I should say this too, you know, the thing about this book is, again, I'm trying to write a, a very fast-paced um, bit of history. I don't want to write history where people fall asleep. I want to write history where people feel like they're in the moment and they're they're with it. And, and you know, the D-Day invasion and later the Market Garden invasion, the Battle of the Bulge, all, all of which are in this book, those are books all to themselves. You could spend an entire book on each, and a lot of historians have. Um, what I chose to focus on, for instance, with D-Day was, you know, select, you know, select characters and put them in the moment. You know, you know, Martha Gellhorn stows away on a hospital ship and you know helps the wounded on Omaha Beach. You know, you got Norman Coda, this this general who literally walked up and down the beach despite sniper fire and encouraged soldiers to get off the beach and, and press inland. Um, you know, and and so there, you know, a couple of the James Gavin was doing the, the parachute drop, but I liked telling it through their eyes. So you could, you could personalize it as opposed to just talking about troop movements and armament and all the kind of stuff that is great background, but really doesn't tell a story.
0: Well, and it also makes for an emotional read. I found myself laughing and crying as I read your book, Martin. <laughs> and uh, one guy that I really got to like was James Gavin. And you have photographs in your book, and I've, I've studied your photographs carefully, like you mentioned Martha Gelhorn. But James Gavin—he's generally—he looks like a kid. He's so young. Yeah, he's a stud too. He's you know he's thirty-seven years
1: old. He's a two-star general, uh, which you know which just doesn't happen. Um, very dedicated to his men. Very dedicated to you know meticulous battlefield planning. But you know, also something of a romantic. You know, he he does fall in love with Martha Gellhorn. They meet by accident, um, and they had they had an affair that spanned the rest of the war. You know, an interesting story about that. You know, is when you write history like that, like you mentioned with with the timestamp at the start of every chapter, it's really important to me to know um, when precise dates and precise times. And you know, the, a lot of Gellhorns um, biographers will will talk about an affair between her and Gavin, but I wanted to find, like, when did they meet? You know, at what point did they literally come face to face? we know that for instance, she was arrested by military police for being a spy and brought to Gavin who didn't really know what to do with her. So he <laughs> let her go. But um, I wanted to find, I couldn't find the exact date. Nobody seemed, everybody kind of danced around it in their research. And then, you know, solely through a quirk of, you know, or a blessing, whatever you want to call it, um, just as I was wrapping up the book, I got a, an, an email from uh, the Gavin family who had, for the first time ever, publishing his wartime journals, which he which he wrote on a typewriter, he, you know, hunt and pecked every day from the battlefield. And he kept them throughout the war, and I found out the exact date and time when he met Martha Gelhorn because he references her very specifically, you know. Hemingway, she was Hemingway's third wife, which is how history usually rem- remembers her. So when he talks about the, when they met on October 15th, 1944, um, he refers to her to her as Mrs. Hemingway, but he's clearly smitten. And if you read uh, Taking Berlin carefully, you'll, you'll notice that um, that's the only time that the chronology is out of order because the book was about to go uh, to press. And I couldn't very well change. I couldn't move one chapter, you know you know, 50 pages forward or backwards. But so what I did was I just changed the timestamp on the chapter where they met. So it's October fifteenth, 1944. But if you look at the chronology of the book, it, it's really out of whack. I just said that was the only thing I could change is just that one line.
0: My guest is Martin Dugard. He has written history books. His previous book was taking Paris, and this one is taking Berlin. Like I say, we as a reader, I really come to admire and appreciate this young general, James Gavin. So we um, are familiar, most if we know anything at all about World War II, we're familiar with um, the D-Day. But there are other uh, significant operations that people may not be familiar with. For example, what role did Operation Migration play? B-A-G-R-A-T-I-O-N, people who aren't familiar
1: well that's the thing you know operation migration d-day was enormous i mean you know the people who were there who witnessed it you read their comments and they could not they were staggered by the you know but the size and scale of the operation you know the, like i mentioned before not just the thousands of ships and the you know the men but all the material that was being offloaded oh, all yeah. the all the shelling that was taking place, all the airplanes in the sky above. I mean, that was, was
0: my reaction when I went to the Normandy beaches. Oh, my gosh, what you are just describing. But excuse me, go ahead. No, I mean, it, it, it,
1: just for that reason, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things when you re- really try to imagine it, it, it it beggars description. Having said that, you know, the Normandy beach has, let's say, at the most, you have a, a section of about 60 to 80 miles of French coastline that's that's being um, invaded Um, and then you have Operation Bagration, which most people in the west don't really know about it but it's the Soviet um, version of D-Day which took place a few weeks later and instead of a 50 or 60 or 70 mile front it's a 650 mile front it's millions of men and it's this epic uh, attempt to you know, for once and for all <clears throat> topple the, the Nazi German uh, military on the, on the Eastern front. And it just, it's one of those things where uh, it's, it's so huge. It's so, it's so Soviet in, in, you know, as I say in the book, it's so Russian in scope because it's, it's such a massive thing. And we've completely forgotten about it here. And, um, and I, again, it's one of those things where I could have written an entire book about that part of the operation. And I had to really, kind of tighten it up just for the reader so we didn't just get bogged down in, in all the stuff, that you know, that all the troop movements and all the artillery attacks. But it was a very complex, very long-term, uh, you know, 10-month operation that eventually brought the Soviets into Berlin.
0: Well, one thing I especially enjoyed uh, were your footnotes. So often there's a, an information in the footnotes. For example, you reminded us of George Orwell's book this a novel in 1945 Animal Farm and I read it when I was so young I didn't really know as much as I know now having read your book about Stalin and what character was Stalin in George Orwell's Animal Farm
1: you know I got it <laughs> it's funny I wrote the book um I'm, I'm gonna go back I think he was a pig um, <laughs> yes a pig you know?
0: named Napoleon yeah. I wrote it yeah
1: you know the thing about it is um it It is kind of the best times, worst of time things. When very often when we go to school and we are told to read Animal Farm, we're very young. So it's you know, credit to, you know, modern education that we're putting a George Orwell book in, into um, a young person's hands, you know, probably middle school or high school. But I honestly think you don't understand the significance of it unless you read it when you're, you know, in your 30s or 40s and you've lived a little bit because then you can you can see the subtext. You can see uh, the political satire involved in that book. And you know, Stalin was a pig. Stalin was not a good guy. and 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 the more you read about him, and, and I you know it, it amazes me to this day that he outfoxed Franklin Del, Delano Roosevelt, who was probably one of the most political individuals you could ever imagine. And Stalin got every concession from Roosevelt that he wanted. He did so in in a way that made Roosevelt trust him and distrust Winston Churchill. Um, and then, of course, you know, at the end of the war, the Soviets just completely, you know, finally did what they wanted to do, which was take over all of Eastern Europe. And they would have, you know, quite frankly, I think they would have gone a lot further west if they'd had the opportunity, if we didn't stand our ground.
0: My guest is best-selling author Martin Dugard, and we're talking about his new book, Taking Berlin. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, best selling author Martin Dugard, who has a sequel to his book, Taking Paris. His newest book is Taking Berlin, the bloody race to defeat the Third Reich. Well, I mentioned uh, information that I found so intriguing in your footnotes. For example, uh, we, uh, for the most part, I think we are very familiar with Churchill's speech, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. What I did not know is that uh, some people think that's not original with Churchill. No, it's Kipling. You know, and, and this points to, um, as, as an
1: author, of the, you know, the importance of, you know, boots on the ground research, you know, actually going to, you know, going to Normandy, going to London, and in this case, um, you know, like a lot of people, I've been to the Churchill War Rooms in in central London, right next to 10 Downing Street, several times. And to their credit, they keep revamping a lot of the displays and putting new information in there. So if you go one time, you, you're going to see something different the next time you see it. And that the fact that he took that from Kipling was one of their displays. They 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 matched. The side-by-side, side, they put Churchill's speech in Kipling's words. And, you know, it's like catnip to an author. It's like, okay, we need, <laughs> we got to use that. So um, so I couldn't wait to put it in because I didn't – when I did Taking Paris, where, where I quote that speech, I didn't know that fact. And so I had to find a way to work it into this book because I thought it was really important.
0: My guest is Martin Dugard, and he writes history books. His previous book was Taking Paris – And the current one, the one that's just released, is Taking Berlin, the bloody race to defeat the Third Reich. Now, you mentioned Market Garden, and if people have heard of, other than D-Day, that's likely, I'm just my supposition here, the uh, one that people have heard of, Operation Market Garden. And what was the significance of Market Garden?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's the largest parachute operation in history, but that... You know that's that's like a, a cliff notes version of it. Basically, it was, an, it was an attempt to leapfrog over the German lines and put uh, Allied troops in Germany through this massive parachute drops. And um, and I knew of it previously from a great but at the same time confusing movie that I saw back in, in the 70s or 80s. I think um, A Bridge Too Far and all these stars in it. You know Sean Connery and uh, you know all the Robert Redford. And I didn't. It's such a complex battle. So to put it in a movie is still action-packed, but at the same time, you gotta kind of take a step back and, and you know, look at the big picture of it. And so basically it was real simple. They they dropped all these parachute troops and they had to take a series of bridges in in the in Holland and hold those bridges. Meanwhile, the British Armor were gonna race up this country road, you know, and take, you know, all the stuff that all the bridges that were being held by the by well, the parachute guys uh, in between were all the the German troops, and the, so the armor would would come in, and wipe out the German troops, connect the dots with all these bridges, and then finally the last bridge would be the bridge at Arnhem, which would be the where you crossed over into Germany. And that term "a bridge too far" was coined by Robert Boyd Browning, one of the British generals, who basically thought it was a little bit too ambitious. It was you know Montgomery led this one. Uh, it was planned in basically a week. And, you know, D-Day took, you know, years, or a year, you know, and then all of a sudden you have this this massive thing with, you need airplanes, you need men, you need tanks, you need parachutes. And, you know, ultimately, the the, the men who did land in Arnhem and tried to hold that bridge were almost wiped out. There were 10,000 who landed Polish and British paratroopers and only 2,500 came home. Um, but for me, again, you go back to Gavin, Gavin led, uh, General Gavin led the American American portion of the 82nd Airborne portion of that which was the bridge at Limea, Megan and at Grove. and when I was researching the book um, you know you you kind of do your research ahead of time and so you kind of figure out how it all goes so it was my wife and I were driving on the road that the armor was using when we got into Grav I kind of intuitively knew where the bridge would be and I you know even though I didn't have a map and you know sure enough just by following the road and heading towards the river we crossed the bridge and it was you can imagine the the moment of what happened there but then it was still you know s- several more miles all, all the way into Nijmegen which Gavin's people also had to hold and the problem with Nijmegen is the Germans had some of their most elite troops stationed there and so to get across the other side of the river and try to take the bridge from the far side was what uh, Gavin tried to do he sent uh, a small group of 82nd airborne across the river paddling and these little flimsy collapsible boats. And almost half of them were you know, brutally destroyed by the German army. And, and those that made it the other side, you know, sought vengeance in a way. But the thing about it was, you know, if you watch a bridge too far, Robert Redford plays the character who leads these men. And and just like when I found the, the, the bridge, of, uh, the grove over the oh, Anyway, uh, when I got to Nijmegen, I kind of, I knew where the crossing took place. Just from my previous research, and we kind of rode around, and you know, sure enough, I found a monument that marked that as the spot. You know, and now it's the the site of a CrossFit gym, <laughs> you know, which is kind of interesting. And so I just kind of parked the car, and I and I would just walk down the berm, just like the troops did when they were putting stuff, um, putting the boats in the water. So again, it informs the research. You you go to where, you know, I I could feel the sand beneath my feet. I could feel the the short grass. You know, getting close to the water, I could see that it was kind of silver gray and was moving very quickly. But then you imagine these guys putting these boats in these water because there is no protective cover, no trees, no shrubs, no nothing. They were basically putting these boats in the water and paddling across, you know, completely exposed to enemy fire. I I couldn't even imagine the courage of what they did.
0: Well, I have a close friend who is an 82nd Airborne, and so I would read the sections of your book to him because I was especially interested in the role that the 82nd Airborne played in your story. So thank you for including that. And um, again, that's part of why I came to admire and like James Gavin, this young general who was um, with the 82nd Airborne. So um, speaking of these uh, relationships to bridges and rivers I really uh, found your maps essential to really understand the relationship of these different forces and where the cities and rivers were. So thank you for including the maps to help us follow what was going on in these various chapters of your book,
1: Martin. Oh, yeah. Who who doesn't love a good map? I mean, I I certainly do. (laughs) I mean, the guy who who does my maps um, to my own disservice, I can't remember his name right now, uh, he listened to Davis. You know, he's not too far away from where you are. And he does a fantastic job, and all I do is I basically send him a, you know, a little bit of the book, and I say, you know, make me a map. <laughs> and he does his research and comes up with some brilliant maps.
0: Well, uh, I mentioned your footnotes, and there's a place in Belgium that people may not be familiar with, a spa. And so you tell us the origin of the word spa. I never thought about uh, other than just being SPA, but um, where does that word spa come from? It's Roman,
1: you know. It goes. It goes back to the time when the Roman legions would would seek the curative waters of that region, and so um, you know, thing about that that a lot of the other, like the town of Rot, that's where we get the Rottweiler dog. dog. You know, the R O T T,
0: uh huh, a town. One uh-huh.
1: of those things come from that little corner of you know of the Low Countries. That uh, you know, I was really kind of fascinated by all that as I was as I was researching it, just trying to, you know, you get curious. I mean. You know, I'm sitting here at my desk, i'm I'm writing, and then you you kind of start going down the rabbit hole of of research. and then you start asking questions like where does is you know, is the town of Spa related to the term spa? And, you know, all these things. It's been a bit since I wrote that. <laughs> but, well, too, too many facts in my head. So I like to put it on the page, and sometimes i I forget it just as quickly. You know it's it's funny because, you know, to that point, sometimes people will read something I wrote you know, literally 20 years ago, you know, I wrote a book by K- Captain Cook back then and wrote about Stanley Livingston in Africa. And I'll get emails from people saying, Um, could you tell me more about, you know, this little fact? It's like, that's two decades ago. That's like, <laughs> of, you know, remind me what I, what I did in a, on a college test paper, you know, way back when. So. Well, uh,
0: be- oh, sorry. Before I leave word origins, because I'm fascinated by word origins, um, you in a footnote, tell us where that, uh, radio acknowledgment, Roger, comes from. And we hear that. The radio operator will say Roger. And you say that Roger grew out of the word received as a radio acknowledgment of instructions. Received was shortened to R because non-English speaker speaking pilots have trouble with that word. Roger was the solution. It's jaunty formality belying the elaborate acronym, here's another acronym. Received, Order Given, Expect Results, R-O-G-E-R. And I didn't know where that word Roger came from. So I learned (laughs) things that uh, kind of aside the history that I found really fascinating in your book, Martin. Thank you for that.
1: um, uh, Just to expand on the word Roger, uh, (laughs) uh, it's also... uh, a slang term for sexual congress so the in other mm-hmm. words the, the pirates were not the jolly rogers because they were a bunch of happy guys named roger um it was basically they were you know talking about their sexual prowess with with that term so i've always thought that was pretty funny because especially now that um you know we have children named roger so <laughs> <laughs> i'm just imagining you know two centuries from now people naming their uh, their child with uh, with the f word just as we go through time. Anyway, a little side note.
0: Innocently, yeah. Well, now, while we're on the subject of footnotes, there is a suicide note by a German, von Kluge, and his suicide note was a plea for sanity, and he wrote this suicide note to Hitler. And it's just... It gives us a different view of, not of instead of painting all German uh, military with a broad brush and they're all feeling the same, uh, here's what you say in your footnote. This is a suicide note. My Führer, make up your mind to end the war. The German people have undergone such untold suffering that it is time to put an end to this frightfulness. You have fought an honorable and great fight, History will prove that for you. Show yourself also great enough to put an end to a hopeless struggle when necessary. And of course Hitler ignored that plea from uh, this military uh, von Klug. Now that you have in the chapter, in the section where we find out what happens to Erwin Rommel. And Well, this was very emotional for me because his son, he has a teenage son, Erwin Rommel does, and his teenage son is in the military, Manfred, and Manfred comes home, and uh, Erwin Rommel tells his son, at 12 o'clock today, two generals are coming to see me to discuss my future employment. And so that's what he's telling his son, today he'll decide what is planned for me, whether a people's court or a new command in the East. Do you have your book handy there that you could read this? um... I I think I see one. I can
1: reach over and grab one.
0: Yeah. Okay. This is on page 195, um, where they're waiting for Hitler's henchmen. And so they're waiting because he said they're coming at 12. So would you read that section? Sure. You know,
1: I should preface this by saying that, um,
0: you know it's hard for us to comprehend, but you
1: know, the Germany was completely destroyed after World War I and you know the cost of reparations you know sent the, the country into a tailspin. And Hitler was seen as you know, Hitler vied with the communists early on for control of of Germany. And when he when he finally rose to power, the first thing he did was get rid of the communists. But you had by the time we get to 1944, 1945, you have this period where Hitler's been in power for a dozen years. Um means that any young child, the only person they've known, their only form of patriotism is Nazism in Adolf Hitler. So uh, Rommel and von Kluge were, were some of the people who were still German patriots, but they want to see their their country saved. You know, Hitler didn't take this well, of course, and of course there was the plot to try to kill him, in which Rommel was inclin- uh, was was implicated. So this is this kind of sets the scene where you know Rommel's given the choice between either. Um, you know, taking taking a suicide pill or suffering a, a state trial, which would have, which would have been horrific, because what Hitler did with the people who were found guilty was hanging them on a meat hook, and um, and kill them that way. So here we go. we well, we're and ra- not
0: everybody thought that Rommel was going to be in trouble. This longtime friend of um, Rommel said Hitler will never do anything to you. You're too popular. It would attract too much attention. Well, yeah. the German
1: the German people still love Rommel, so you have to remember too. Um, in the summer of 1944, just after the American invasion, Rommel's car was driving down a country road in France, and he was attacked by a Canadian Royal Air Force uh, Spitfire that just, you know, launched some some of its 20 millimeter cannon and destroyed the car, killed Rommel's driver. Uh, Rommel was thrown from the car. He's, you know, he lost his his cheek was crushed. I mean, just caved in. He lost. Uh, the sight in one eye, and he was sent home to convalesce. And so he had a lot of time to think, he, you know, when, by the time we get to October 1944, he's, this has been, you know, two months since the accident, so he's very contemplative. And so that's where we, we set the scene.
0: Yeah, because when his friend said, um, oh, Hitler won't do, dare do anything to you, and Rommel replied, you're wrong. Hitler wants to get rid of me, and he'll leave no stone unturned to do it. Well, and, yeah, there and, was... and you say Rommel wasn't being paranoid that, um... anyway, go ahead, excuse me. No, no, it, it, you bring up a good point. You know, Rommel one time at the start of the war
1: 1940, he was a Hitler accolade. He was a big believer in Hitler and, you know, the, the new power of tank warfare in the Blitzkrieg. Um, but after Rommel failed in North Africa, after he was driven from North Africa— and after he failed to prevent the Americans coming ashore, which was his job, was to build the Western Wall that was going to keep the Allies out of Normandy, uh, he he was had fallen into disgrace with Hitler. Hitler was was done with Rommel, and there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, jealousy and backbiting amongst the other German generals. Who, you know, um, they were most of them were, were from Prussia, which is more, you know, like think of New York City, and Rommel is from Swabia, so think of. Let's say Alabama, so you you know, a different accent, a different way of life, a different approach to being a general, and there wasn't a lot of love lost between Hitler and, uh, and Rommel because of that distinction. So anyway, so here we go. Three dreadful hours waiting for Hitler's henchmen. The Rommels retreat to their separate spaces, father, son, and wife Lucia, who remains in her bedroom. Manfred, a boy no longer, smokes lumps in throats and knots in stomachs, living a nightmare. The coming visitors might as well walk through the door carrying broadswords. Even in the best case scenario that they are offering Rommel, a command on the Eastern Front, such a posting is almost certainly a death sentence. Erwin Rommel changes from civilian clothing into his famous Africa Corps uniform just before noon. He affixes his iron cross medals around his neck. He always wears them both at the same time having become a common part of his attire during those famous years in Egypt and Libya. Rommel's field marshal's baton is close at hand, but he does not wield it. Then they are here. An opal sedan pulls up the drive off the main public road in front of Rommel's white mansion.
0: So Quote, here are these, uh, he refers to them as henchmen, that Hitler has sent. And Rommel knows why they're there, Um and there's his son. His son is just a teenager. So would you skip over to where Manfred tries to tell himself, oh, they're, they're not going to arrest him. And then he opens a book to read. Would you pick up there, this is on page 197, Martin.
1: Um, Top of the page. The teenager does not read long. After what seems like just a few minutes, though, in truth it is nearly an hour, he hears his father's footsteps walking up the stairs, to where Lucia waits. Manfred suddenly fears the worst. He walks quickly into his mother's bedroom. Erwin Rommel has already given her the news. He stands pale, and visibly upset. Come outside with me, Manfred will write of his father's next words. The field marshal's voice is unusual, pinched and nervous, not at all the calm, knowing demeanor the son has come to know. The two men leave Lucia's bedroom. I've just had to tell your mother that I shall be dead in a quarter of an hour. Ruben Raul breaks the news to his son. The house is surrounded and Hitler is charging me with high treason. In view of my services in Africa, and here the field marshal's voice grows calm and sarcastic, as if it is not enough just to be the most famous German general, I am to have the chance of dying by poison. Manfred does not speak. Cannot. What is there to say? His father continues. The two generals have brought it with them. It's fatal in three seconds. If I accept, none of the usual steps be taken against my family. That is against you. So, you know, I mean, I have three sons, and I can't imagine that conversation, you know, a, a father talking to a, a boy who's just become a teenager and having that last few moments together. And, I mean, I I think I'd break down. I'd, I'd oh, I dead. did. I did. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's such a sad, tender moment. But again, you know, I... I Rommel's a big part of um, taking Paris, so I, I needed to make sure yeah. I told the rest of his story yeah. and taking people in. And, um, you know, it's, it's you know when I when I get, I have so many research books, like my office is just this sea of books.
0: <laughs> I wonder sometimes how many books it takes to write a book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it takes a lot of books. And um, when I'm done, you know, when I've finished writing about an individual, and I'm pretty sure I'm never going to write about them again because, you know, like with Rommel, we just kill him. Um, I take all the books dedicated to that individual, in this case, you know, all my books about Rommel, which you know, I've got you know had a small pile of them, and I give it to the local friends of the library just because I you know I don't have enough space in my little office. um but when I gave them Rommel's books, I was super sad. It was like I was literally saying goodbye to Rommel, having you know spent the better better part of the last five years getting to know him and writing about him, knowing his strengths and weaknesses and it was it was a little bit sad, In my, you know, really weird history geek kind of way. It, it was sad.
0: My guest is Martin Dugard, and his previous book is Taking Paris. This book is Taking Berlin: The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, best-selling author Martin Dugard. So we have the personality, we learn more about the personality of Rommel, his son Manfred. But we also learn about the personalities and the interactions of people like Eisenhower and Patton and Monty, the Field Marshal Montgomery. And uh, just as that scene with Manfred and his dad made me cry, there are scenes with Patton that made me laugh. And <laughs> there must have been scenes that you found humorous in your research, Martin. Man,
1: I loved writing write about Patton. And, I'm like, <laughs> you know, here's the thing. First of all, anybody who keeps a really, really good journal is easy to write about because, you know, then you can get inside their thoughts and their At fears. At the time and, you know, and
0: not after the fact.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's not like they're on Oprah, you know, talking about what they're experiencing. It's it's very immediate, and so you can it's easy to put yourself in the room in in the scene with that individual. But also think about Patton. You know, you think of military men as being uh, stoic or you know or you know really super macho, and 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 Patton was not those things. He's a very uh, he's a romantic. He's a very uh, compassionate man. He was a great leader of men. He was fearless on the battlefield, you know, like Gavin talks about, you know, he led from the front, unlike Montgomery. Um, but at the same time, he was super so curial. And so you have, and if you read his words, he's he's very high, he's very low, he's, he's lonely, he's angry, you know, and not just angry, but furious. And he puts these words on the page in a way that you can tell that he really wanted, he planned on after the war, you know, putting them all in a book. Yeah, you know, because he knew that this was going to be his last war. He was, you know, approaching 60, which at the time was considered a pretty advanced age. And, um, yeah, when you write about Patton, it is just, it's a character study. It's so much fun.
0: Well, I enjoyed this uh, scene in Verdun. This is December 19th, 1944. And uh, Eisenhower was just a day away from being promoted to five-star general. And Ike opens the meeting, uh, but Montgomery wasn't there. Even in that time of the war, he refuses Eisenhower's every summons. So Monty was not going to <laughs> uh, accede to um, Eisenhower's wishes. So there's a scene after the, the meet. this meeting uh, with these generals continues for a couple of hours. And then Eisenhower walks Pat into his Jeep. And Eisenhower says, funny thing, George. Every time I get another star, I get attacked. <laughs> as both men remember when Eisenhower made full general, North Africa and the tragedy at Kasern Pass, and then Patton responds. And every time you get attacked, Ike, I have to bail you out.
1: <laughs> Which is, I love that brash, you know, back and forth. I got to tell you too. Um, it's funny as you you talk about that scene. That I don't know why. It, but that chapter took me forever to write. I just couldn't get the right um, feel, the right pacing towards it. And it's one of those things that sometimes when you write a book, you know, the words just, you know, come onto the page by themselves. And sometimes you get maybe 50 words a day, and you can't. It doesn't sound right, or or it sounds stiff. And then you gotta you gotta go back and find a way to make it flow with the with the pace and the rhythm of the rest of the book. And that chapter was one of those chapters. It it took me. We I came to a dead stop for about three weeks.
0: Again, my uh, guest is Martin Dugard, and we uh, are taking a look at his book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. Now, we've mentioned some of these characters that are larger than life that we've heard of, but there's a character that uh, we have mentioned her, but she doesn't make the history books very much, and she was quite an amazing person there's a chapter you described her going up in an airplane at night and uh, what was this person that I'm referring to <laughs> you read a review of uh, Martin
1: no oh, Martha Gellhorn I mean I you know it's funny because I I knew she was Hemingway's wife but when I originally was looking for the the three or four characters I wanted to build this narrative around I wanted Hemingway to be the person you know and so because you know he famously liberated Paris, or he says he liberated Paris. He liberated the Barthelot <laughs> Hotel, um, and you know. And by the way, you know I'm a I'm a white American male. I'm, as a writer, I grew up idolizing Ernest Hemingway, just you know reading his words and trying to trying to you know analyze his process to help my own writing. And I found myself as I tried to research Hemingway to bring him into this. I found myself very disappointed in Hemingway. This was a time when he was trying to. Uh, he was almost a caricature of himself, and you know, living off of his. And
0: Martin, I had that same reaction. That the more I learned about Hemingway, the less of a fan I was. And um, we learn more about him indirectly through this character, Martha Gilhorn.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and I, like I said, you know, you you get very attached to historical characters because as you read their words and you you follow their actions, you really come to know them. As you would a, a very good friend, and Gelhorn just became one of those people that I had her in the opening with, uh, with stowing away on that hospital ship, you know, to Omaha Beach, and that was really all I knew about her. And then
0: I, Because she at one time at had credentials as a journalist, but yeah, she had credentials, and they got taken away. And she, but that arrest. didn't stop her.
1: <laughs> just fearless. When you talk about Moxie, you talk about not accepting the fact that. You know, you're a you're a woman in a man's world, and and she, you know, and you know she was profane. You know, she could she could drink with with the guys. She she was flirtatious. You know,
0: and she was an attractive woman. She you just mentioned the way she dressed was like a, a woman, and and I think maybe that also helped her to get in through the back door, so to speak. In a lot of cases,
1: I think so. You know, as a writer too. Um, i like i like to write a book that everybody might be interested in reading and i think if you don't have a strong woman in a history book you're basically saying that your audience is just a bunch of dudes and mm-hmm. you know like with virginia hall and taking paris the woman with one leg who was a spy oh my gosh uh, yes i remember
0: her yes.
1: she was fantastic and i wanted you know when Gil horn to me i mean she wasn't a spy but she was everywhere i mean she like you said she was she took flights with bomber crews you know she was she was at Market Garden, she was in Rome, you know, she she describes some of her descriptions of the dead in the aftermath of a oh battle. Oh my gosh, yeah. Are so amazing. So I've got to say, last time um I was in London a few months ago, Uh my wife and I went for a walk, and she said, where are we going? So we're going to go to Chelsea, because this is where Martha Gellhorn bought her flat, and I just wanted to go you know make a pilgrimage and you know you know visit the site because that's also also where she eventually killed herself um decades later and sure enough you know we went to her the place that she lived there's one of those blue plaques that you see in london on the outside of the house saying that martha gellhorn used to live there and it was raining so we just sat down on her porch out of the rain you know, and the guy who actually lives there now came <laughs> came home, and he gave us a look. And I said, "Oh, hey, man, we're just trying to get out of the rain." He goes, "I completely understand." <laughs> so he was cool with it. But again, it's like the Rommel thing was kind of communing with Martha Gellhorn. And I have to say this too: I, you know, I'm not above reading Amazon reviews. And some some guy was saying, "I don't want to read about Martha Gellhorn. It's like, why wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, we 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 have everybody else. We have Patton. We have Rommel. We've got Churchill. We've got Gavin. We've got action, action, action. And just because it's a woman being in the forefront of all this and describing it and taking the same risks in some places that that men did, why wouldn't we want to write about her? And and she's fascinating. So uh, she's she's a great story. The, her story tells itself. So I'm really glad to, to have been able to put her in the book.
0: And she was brave enough to go up in a night flight, a very small plane, and uh, the air was very thin because it wasn't pressurized cabin. And my gosh, I was just amazed that what she was willing to put herself through, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to do that. Um, As much as I like adventure, that was a bit more than (laughs) I would sign up for. So we come to admire uh, that. And plus, since she kept a journal, again, the journal, we know how she was feeling at the time. And and she was writing about it because she was a journalist and she wrote for Colliers, for example. And um, so we have a record of that. And so it was I was so glad you included this person, um, Martha Gellhorn, in your book. Now, you also, at the back of your book, you bring us up to date on what happened to these various characters. And, of course, we know that um, President Roosevelt died just very shortly after the war ended. Um, And there was a section where you give us Winston Churchill's speech when he came with Truman to Missouri, and that speech with the Iron Curtain. So thank you for including that. I wish we had more time to to talk about this, but I think most people are familiar with Churchill's coming to the United States and mentioning this Iron Curtain, because we still, today, we have trouble with the Russians. So this is a good background for our present-day relations with this country <laughs> and its president.
1: Uh, no. Yeah, no, Putin has taken a, a page right out of Stalin's playbook. I mean, that's yes. the same aggression. And actually, if you go down through the centuries, even back to the Viking Age when the Vikings were, you know, in that region because the Vikings were everywhere, um, as far back as the 8th and ninth centuries, they talk about these fierce barbarian uh, warriors called, called the Rus, R-U-S, which is where we get Russians. So. I should say, too, about that Churchill speech, and I, I didn't do it justice, and I'm I'm actually working on taking London right now, which is the thir- third book in the trilogy, so when Churchill gave that speech, you know, basically talked about the Iron Curtain and predicting what the world was going to be like going forward, you know, he makes this this comment, that, you know, I predicted all of this, and nobody listened to me, so, you know, kind of listen to me now, because if you go back to you know, the early 1930s, when no, when everybody thought that Hitler was great, you know, the the British, you know, even, even the King of England is teaching, is teaching his, is doing the the Sig Heil salute because he thinks Hitler's so cool. Churchill was the one person saying, we need to be afraid of this guy. He's going to, he's going to cause a war. You know, they're, they're just, they're just a few hundred miles away. They're the smartest people in the world, but all they want to do is wage war. And, Hitler was, I mean, Churchill was effectively banished, you know, from, he was still in parliament, but he lost all his power. So between 1931 and, and 1939, when he, came, when he came back into power, he was seen as this Jeremiah type, you know, walking in the wilderness individual. Everybody wanted to talk about peace and prosperity, and Churchill was saying, war is coming. And people, because it was such an unpopular message, he, he became a, a subject of scorn and ridicule. Well, uh, book in that.
0: I think people will learn a lot, get insights from reading your new book, Martin. Let me tell people again: the name of your new book is "Taking Berlin: The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich." The author is Martin Dugard. Thank you, Martin.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It was fantastic. Really appreciate it.
0: listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website mynspr.org.